Open up to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We are in part 5 of our series on Hebrews called Greater Than, that Christ is greater than all things. We can take the equation Christ is greater than, put anything to the right of that greater than symbol, and it still holds true. Christ is truly greater than all things. I want to start with a question. Should you follow your head or should you follow your heart? Have you ever felt those two things at odds with each other? Should you follow your head or follow your heart? Should you do what you know and think is right or should you do what makes you feel good? I think that's the gist of head versus heart. And I think we live in tension often. Do I follow my head or do I follow my heart? Now, occasionally some things line up and head and heart agree it's logically the right thing and heart says, yes, I I want that. That's how I feel when I go to the freezer for ice cream. But sometimes things don't line up that well and your head is saying, no, this is wrong, but our heart says, yes, it's right. So should we follow our heads or our hearts? And as we see in this passage, in many ways, the answer is neither. You should not follow your head or your heart. You should set your mind, your head, on Christ and follow Him. We should set our hearts on Christ and allow Him to direct how we feel. We are to follow Christ. And so today we're going to look at our minds and our hearts. How do we have set minds and soft hearts, minds that are set on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so fully convinced and following Christ, knowing the truth, that nothing can tear us away from that. But how do we also have a soft heart that God is able to direct our heart in obedience to Him? Set minds and soft hearts. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3. Let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 6 and deal with our minds. What does it mean to have minds set on Christ? I'll read this for us. You can read along with me. Verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory." So he starts with this charge to us. And the author addresses his readers, and I think us here today as well, holy brothers and sisters. It's this idea of the family of Christ. The family of Christ that has been made holy by Christ. We are not who we were. In the Exodus, which is a story that the author of Hebrews is tying into over and over and over again. There's a pattern that was set. God reached into history and he sent his servant Moses and he called him to go to Egypt and proclaim the freedom for his people, to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt, 
to call them out into the wilderness. And so they were called from something, and then they were shaped into something. God gives them his law, and he says, as my people, here's how you are to live. This is what the community is to look like. And he was calling them to something. They were being led somewhere, the promised land. They had the hope day after day, no matter what they were going through, no matter how hard it was, God had a plan. He was leading them somewhere. The same is true for us today. We've been called out of sin. Our slavery was to sin, and through Christ we are called out of that, saved from that. We are shaped into something new. The church is a unique community, a gospel-shaped, gospel-driven, truth-driven community. And we're called somewhere. We're being led by Christ through this world that is not our home to spend eternity with Him. Our promised land is the very presence of God and His reign forever and ever. That is our certain hope in Jesus Christ. We have a heavenly calling. And so based on this truth, the author of Hebrews tells us, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. This doesn't just mean think about Him a little bit. It doesn't mean just concentrate really hard. It means to think deeply. To put an anchor of your thoughts in the truth of who Jesus is and consider him with great depth and understanding. Go deep in your understanding of who Christ is and what the gospel is. We need to think deeply about our faith. When I was in high school, a book came out. I think it came out during that time. I think it was by Josh McDowell. It was called Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. Great title. Don't check your brains at the door. And too often, I think that Christians are guilty of that very thing. And too often the world looks at us and they accuse us of being thoughtless, mindless lemmings that just follow leaders for no reason at all. And truthfully, occasionally they're right. We do check our brains at the door. It's one of the things I love about this church. We spend time in Bible study. We consider Sunday school and Bible studies, whatever shape or form they take, that it's important to gather together, pour deeply into God's Word. It's why we're spending months in the book of Hebrews looking deeply at the Word of God. We want to set our minds on Christ. We want to think deeply. Do you know that one day, if you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity in His presence? And I love that fact. I I love the fact that we will be with Christ forever and ever. Some people say that when you get to heaven that you're just going to know everything that there is possibly to know. I disagree with that. I could be wrong. I think we're going to spend eternity learning more and more and more. We have an eternal Savior and every single day in eternity we could learn something new about Him and never exhaust the depth of what there is to know about Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've been a Christian, or maybe you're hearing about Christ for the first time, or the fifth time, or the tenth time, there's more for you to know. It's so easy, a child can grasp the gospel, and yet it's so deep that you can spend the rest of your life going deeper and deeper and deeper, and always learn more. If you're here and you've been a Christian and going to church for 50, 60, 70 years, you're not done yet. There's more to know. There's so much more in this adventure of setting our minds on Christ. We need to fix our thoughts, set our minds on Jesus Christ so that we are not easily pulled off of the truth of the gospel. 
The author addresses Christ. He says, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. An apostle was one sent with a message. A high priest was somebody that represented the people before God and represented God before the people. So he fulfills these two roles, one sent with a message and a representative between God and his people. And in the Jewish mindset, I believe another name would have popped into their heads. Somebody who also served that role in history. Somebody pretty important. In fact, it's who the author mentions. He talks about Moses. He says of Jesus, he, meaning Christ, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And that phrase right there, Moses being faithful in all God's house, is a quote straight out of Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. And it's interesting, in the context, Miriam and Aaron had risen up. This was kind of other leaders, but they were to be under Moses. And they rose up and said, doesn't God also speak to us? Aren't we pretty important too? Why does Moses get all the glory? Why is he so important? We should be important too. And God steps in to clarify the situation. And God says to them of Moses in verse 7 of Numbers 12, he is faithful in all my house. And then later on in verse 8, he says, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So, so Moses is held up by God saying, I have chosen to work through him in this way. You better be careful to question him. That's a big deal. Now look what the author of Hebrews is doing with this. He's saying, yes. It is a big deal to question Moses. And so when we preach Christ, the Jewish people, rightly so, should have a question. Wait a minute. How can Christ be greater than Moses? Let's look at what the passage says. It starts by comparing them. They both were faithful. Moses did go to Pharaoh. Moses did the signs and the wonders that God called him to do. Moses led the people out. Moses went through the wilderness. He didn't always do everything right, but he was faithful. Consider Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus left heaven's throne and was born among us. He lived among us. He came to us. He died on the cross for us. He rose from the grave for us. Jesus, too, is faithful. So a question is raised. Is Jesus just another prophet? Is he just another teacher? Is he another Moses? Is he another Elijah or Elisha? Do we just look to him as a good teacher? And the author addresses this. And he begins in verse 3 by making some comparisons. He uses two comparisons. A builder compared to the house and a son compared to a servant. In verses 3 and 4, he talks about a builder compared to a house. Because Numbers chapter 12, verse 7 stated that Moses was faithful in all God's house. So God used Moses in his house. Now, what is the house he's talking about? It's not a building. It's the people, Israel. God was doing something in history. He was building a people to be the people among whom he dwelt, his house. And Moses was faithful in that house. And that's wonderful. But then he says, consider Jesus. Because if you look at a house, do you take a brick and say, my, what an amazing brick, when the architect is standing right there. Do you not instead look at the architect and say, what an amazing house you built? How did you design this house? You don't take one piece of wood out of the wall and say, this is an amazing piece of wood. You say, this is an amazing architect who put it all together. 
Don't miss the point of the author of Hebrews. Jesus is the builder of the house. He's not like the other servants. He's not like Moses and Elijah and the other prophets that came along. He is the builder of the house. He's the architect that's putting it all together. He talks about comparing a son to a servant in verse 6, or 5 and 6, because again, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, talks about Moses being a servant. And the author expands on this. He was a servant that bore witness to what God was doing and would do in the future. What was it that Moses was bearing witness to? What was it in the future? He was pointing down the road of history to say something is coming. It was Christ. Moses was pointing to Christ. I love the story of Jesus after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, meeting up with some disciples, and they don't know who he is. And he goes and he walks through the Old Testament and he shows them how it all points to him. Moses, his life and his ministry was pointing to Jesus Christ. Christ is the son over the house. So Jesus is greater than Moses. As great as Moses was, Jesus is greater than. And then he comes in verse 6. Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence, the hope in which we glory. He returns to the idea from verse 1 that we are the household of Christ. We share in the heavenly calling of his salvation. Friends, if you're here today and you've been saved by Jesus Christ, that's your identity right there. You're part of the household of faith. You have a heavenly calling. You've been set apart as holy. We are the house that Christ is building. You are the very power of God at work in this day and age. God is doing amazing things in your life, whether you see it or not. He is constantly at work. And because this is true, the author of Hebrews, as he does often throughout this book, he gives a warning. Pay attention. Don't let go of the truth of the gospel. The Christians in this day, just as they were or are today, were being pulled back into what they were comfortable with. The Jewish believers were being pulled back into their Jewishness and saying, I don't like being cast out of the synagogue. I miss my family. I want to worship with them. Can't I be Jewish and Christian? Can't I give the sacrifices and worship Christ? Some of them were being pulled into their culture. Can I be a Christian and follow the culture? Can I give in and rearrange some of the teachings of Scripture to be more acceptable to my culture? And the author says, be careful. Be careful. Hold firmly to your confidence. Now, what's he talking about there? Our confidence and the hope in which we glory. This is not talking about being more confident. It's not talking about emphasizing how confident you are. Well, I'm really, really confident. It's talking about the goal of our confidence, the focus of our confidence. It's talking about the truth of Christ. The emphasis is not on having confidence, it's on what your confidence is in. It's easy as a Christian to just try to manufacture more faith. 
It's easy to focus on how much we feel about faith, but here in the context, it's about fixing our thoughts on Christ. And he's saying, look at the confidence of the gospel. Go deep in the confidence of the gospel. That's your hope. That's your glory. Now, in order to understand the warning that is here, and there is a strong warning, we need to look at the rest of the chapter because he's going to play this out and it will help us to understand what this warning is. So let's look at verses 7 through 19. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 days they saw what I did. That is why I was, or 40 years, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you is a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt and with whom he was angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And so here we move into a passage about a hard heart. What does it mean to have a hard heart or a soft heart? In Scripture, a hard heart, a hard heart can be used for disobedience. Somebody who constantly sinned can be spoken of as hard-hearted. But throughout Scripture, there's something that lies underneath that. There's a cause of that sort of disobedience manifesting, or a hard heart manifesting itself as disobedience. It is unbelief. A stubborn, conscious refusal to accept who God is and what He has done. It is listening to the truth of the Gospel and saying, no, I refuse to believe it. That's a hard heart. Saying, I won't listen. I won't accept what Christ has said. I won't even entertain the notion, I know what's best, God doesn't. That's a hard heart. Now listen, it is more than struggling with faith. There is a warning here, but the warning is not, hey, if you're struggling with your faith, you're in big, big trouble. If you are here today and you are struggling to trust Christ, maybe even stumbling along the way. You are in good company, okay? We all struggle. We all stumble. That's not what this passage is about. I love the story in Mark 9 where a father asks Jesus to heal his son. And the father says, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. God loves people who are struggling along the way. If God didn't love people who were struggling along the way, none of us would have any hope at all. Because we struggle along the way. So I don't want you to hear this warning and hear it as God beating you up for your struggles to trust in Him. That's not what this is about. And in order to understand better what it is about, He gives us an example from the Old Testament. 
It is the example of the Israelites. And he quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And this section of the psalm has two main points. And I want to deal with the bottom or the the later part of the quote first. In the last part of the quote, he talks about many Israelites who never entered the promised land. They died in the wilderness. They refused to trust God. They refused to accept his means of salvation. They thought they knew better. Sometimes they said this in ways of, I'd rather go back to Egypt. I'd rather die here in the desert. My way is better. God doesn't know what he was doing. They said it in many different ways. And it's interesting because God gives them exactly what they wanted. They didn't want to go where he was leading. They wanted to stay where they were. And that's exactly what happened. And they died in the wilderness. And so he raises that up as an example. These people had Moses, their great faithful leader, yet look at what happened to them. But then there's another part here. In the first part of the quote, because this psalm was written much later than the Exodus. The Exodus had already taken place. The people had already died in the wilderness. The rest of them had gone into the promised land. God had established them there in the promised land. And one day, the psalmist begins writing this psalm, and he takes that and he says, Hey guys, today, today, if you still hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Listen to what he's saying. There is still hope as long as there is a today. He's saying as long as the sun is rising today, as long as you woke up and you have breath in your lungs, there is a chance to trust Christ. There is a chance to follow Him. God is still at work, still leading His people. This is a theme that's going to be picked up in the next passage. I'm trying to hold off to talk about that then. And so he says, don't have a hard heart that refuses to see what God is doing and to listen to him, and holds on to your rightness so much so that you declare God is wrong. Well, how do we protect against a hard heart? He says in verse 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. How do we protect against a hard heart? Look at verse 13. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called Today, if we are going to personally protect our own private hearts from becoming hard, we need each other. You need the person sitting next to you. You need the people from first service. You need the brothers and sisters in Christ that are meeting in the church down the road. And around the world, we need the brothers and sisters that meet in Nicaragua that we're going to go see in July. We need the Christians from out all or throughout all of history to be an example to us, just as the author will talk about later in the book of Hebrews. We need each other. We need to encourage one another. This word encourage does not simply mean coming alongside them and patting them on the back. It does mean that, but it's much, much more. Encouragement in Scripture is generally there's the place that you should be walking come on, let's keep going that way together. It necessarily means at times when you point out the way that God is moving and working, necessarily saying, hey, you're going the wrong way. So an encouragement in Scripture is often also a challenge, a rebuke even. Hey, you're going the wrong way. 
come on back. We need to encourage one another. We need to get below the surface level of some of our Christian conversations about the weather and about football and what happened last weekend. And we need to keep going and challenge one another and say, how are you doing? Are you spending time in God's Word? What are you learning? What are you struggling with? Do we have room in our Christian conversations to talk about what we're struggling with? Or do we feel we have to put on this plastic facade and just act like everything's okay all the time? If we act like everything's okay all the time, how can we actually encourage one another? We need a local church. We need a Christian community. You should not be a Christian out on your own. We need the encouragement and the challenge of one another. And as long as it is called today, we need to keep doing that. Encouraging and challenging one another. So that's one way that we protect against an unbelieving heart. It's by encouraging one another. Another way that we protect against an unbelieving heart is by holding on to conviction. Now, just as he did with this idea of confidence before, now he uses what I would consider kind of a heart word of conviction. Do you just feel convicted? Is that what he's talking about? Hold on to a deep feeling of conviction. No. Again, he's talking about the content of the gospel. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly. Go deep in the truth about Jesus. Set your heart there just as you've set your mind there. Think about what the Israelites saw and experienced as they left Egypt. Think about what they saw at the base of Mount Sinai. Think of what they saw through the wilderness wandering. And yet think about how easily many of them gave up that conviction. The experience is not enough. Going through the motions is not enough. Being involved in church is not enough. Serving as a leader is not enough. Eating a cracker and drinking juice once a month is not enough. It's only through believing in Christ. We need to hold on to the conviction of the gospel. And finally, verses 15 through 19, he again goes back to the Exodus. And he again holds up as an example these people that never even entered the promised land. And here we protect against an unbelieving heart by heeding the warnings from Scripture. Look, a lot of people grow up in the church. They participate in the community of faith. They go to youth group and Sunday school and they they do the Christian thing. They listen to the Christian music. They hang out with the Christian kids. But then we see them wander away. And we need to come to Scripture and say there's a warning here in Scripture. And if I could put it in my own words, it's this. Unless our young people and unless ourselves have truly accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, all the outward action doesn't mean a thing. You can participate in church. You can go to Sunday school. You might be looked at as a great church leader. But if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, none of that matters. There's the warning. 
Where is your mind? Where is your heart? Are they set on Jesus Christ? Have you come to the point where you have bowed your life at the throne of Christ and said yes to the gospel and yes to the Savior? We need to heed the real warning of what happened. And so in conclusion, I do want to come back to that warning. What is the warning? If we hold firmly to the gospel and the hope in which we glory in verse 6. It's the same warning that we see in verse 19. We see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. I've always told people when I come to a warning passage in scripture, I will preach it as a warning. But I also want to be careful because sometimes in a warning we can leave so beat up that we don't know where to turn to. So I want to be careful here first what the warning is not. This is not a warning saying if you're struggling with sin, you're in big trouble. If you're struggling with sin, then God can't love you. That is not the message of Scripture. Please hear that. That's not what this warning is. The Bible is very clear that God can and does forgive sins and that our salvation is never, ever dependent upon what we do. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Ephesians 2.8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If you're looking at your own life today and you see sin there, And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we will. And maybe even in your life, you look back over your history, distant or more recent, and you say, there is something there. There's no way God can forgive it. And now the preacher is preaching about this warning, and I'm just a sinful, awful person. Listen to me. God can forgive any sin. Anything. That's not what this warning is. If you're struggling with sin, run to Jesus Christ. He can and He will forgive you. If you accepted Christ long ago and you're struggling with Christ, run to, or struggling with sin, run to Christ. Grab a brother and sister along the way and say, help me, hold me accountable. God can and will forgive your sin. We need to be careful in a passage like this that we don't turn to our works and think that that's what saves us. Scripture is very clear about that. But, We do need to heed the warning. The Bible does speak about an appearance of faith that is not real faith. And I believe that's what this warning is about. In Mark chapter 4, it talks about seed that is scattered in many different places. Some of it springs up quickly and grows wonderfully, but then other parts don't grow at all. But then there's these three soils. One grows up quickly and withers, One never even gets a chance because birds eat it, and one grows up and is choked by thorns. All of those three had somewhat of an appearance of something good, but it could not last. And the author here is tapping into this Old Testament story where the people saw what God did. They were there along the way. They witnessed the miracles. And everybody would have said, oh yes, they're part of the community of faith, but their hearts had never actually been changed. That's the warning. 
Look, some come to church and participate. Love the songs. Endure the preaching. Go to Sunday school in small groups. Go through all the motions. But possibly aren't even saved. And as a pastor, as a Christian, that terrifies me. Because if this group gets huge, but we fill this room with people that think they're saved and are not, I want none of it. And each one of us needs to ask ourselves, am I going through the motions? Or have I really been saved by Jesus Christ? When you set your mind on Christ, your faith will be challenged, but your hope will also be strengthened. Because if you look at the gospel and you're able to say, yes, that is what I'm trusting for salvation, then there is great strength in that conviction And you can hold on to that and say, that is why I am saved. Another challenge. Too often we get this truth backwards. We have set hearts and soft minds. We say, I know what I feel and I know what I feel is right and that's what I'm going to do no matter what. And then somebody says, have you ever heard about this truth over here? We go, no, that sounds really interesting. And we just run after it. (laughs) We need to have set minds. Soft hearts. So set on the gospel of Jesus Christ, so going deeper and deeper in the truth of who Christ is that we're learning more and more, but we need to also have a soft heart to love others through the lens of the gospel, to allow God to direct our lives so that we're obedient to Him even if it doesn't feel good, and allow God to move our hearts. I want to end with a passage from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. If you'd turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I won't go into the context. It is important, but we'll just jump into the middle of it here. Speaking about the maturity of Christ, and then he's, or in Christ for the church, and he picks up in verse 14, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There should be a maturity manifesting itself in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, and in the community of faith. Because if we don't have that, we're going to be tossed around like a a leaf cast out on a stormy ocean, just tossed here and there with wherever the culture moves, with wherever the popular ideas go. And can I tell you something? I shared this in first service, and I don't know if I should have, but I'm going to do it again. I'm scared for the church in America right now. Now, I believe Christ is going to accomplish his purposes. I believe he's going to do that no matter what. I believe the church will always prevail because Christ has never given up and will never fail. I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. But I also have the testimony of Scripture that God's people struggle often. 
And I see a struggle going on among our brothers and sisters in Christ. I see a tossing around. Friends, we need to look through the lens of the gospel. And right now, we have a man in our White House. And and what I see are some Christians are just wholeheartedly accepting him and everything he does unequivocally without asking any questions and without looking through a grid of truth. Others hate him so much. Nothing he does will ever be good, and everything is always wrong. I know two things about our president, just as I know two things about every person that has ever lived throughout the course of human history. He's made in the image of Christ, and he is a wicked, awful sinner. We need to say amen to both. And I do not see thoughtfulness on the part of many of our brothers and sisters in interacting with our culture and with our president. It's good to like what he does. He's making decisions, I hope, as Christians, we can applaud. I hope good things come of them, and it's good to hold that up and say this is good. He's doing some of it in a wicked, awful way that is not representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we have to hate him. It doesn't mean we have to whine and complain. But let's at least be honest. Christ didn't teach or teach us to treat people the way he often does. Let's be loving, let's also be smart, and let's see things through the grid of the gospel. Because we don't want to be just thrashed here and about. Your faith should not be dependent on who's in the White House. Your hope for eternity should not be dependent upon who's in the White House. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And I hope that we can set our minds so fully on Christ That yes, we can see that God is using our government, hopefully in some good ways, and yes, we can also see that there is also wickedness. Because our world needs to see us as Christians with minds set on Christ, not set on our politics. Please engage your brain when you engage this culture. Please soften your hearts when you speak to other people who disagree with you. And show them the love of Christ. Let's have set minds and soft hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so easy to get caught up in thinking we are right. It's so easy to think that what we think and what we feel is always right because we are thinking and feeling it. And yet your word confronts us. And in passages like here in Hebrews, it even challenges us and warns us. May we heed that warning. May we not throw out everything else Scripture says about salvation through grace alone. We know and need to hold on tight to the truth. There's nothing we can do to be saved. Our salvation is dependent upon you and what you have done, and we praise you for that. But we also know that there is a danger There's a danger of going through the motions and getting caught up in the shifting tides of this world. And so may we hear the warning to fix our thoughts on Christ, to not be hard-hearted in the way we follow Christ and obey Him and also the way we deal with others. I thank you that your Son is our great High Priest and our great Leader who is leading us and guiding us. And there is always hope. 
you are not done with us and you are not done with this world. And as long as it is called today, may we hold out the hope of the gospel to our own hearts and to everybody around us. That they too could hear the call, fix your hearts and your minds on Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.